This is my uh, first lecture of this series, and it's on the early comedy to Gentlemen of Verona. Uh, if you've seen Shakespeare in Love, you might know that the most uh, popular plays in the film's imaginary Elizabethan world are Marlowe's Dr. Faustus and an unnamed play represented by a scene with a clown and a dog wearing a ruff. This pleases Queen Elizabeth mightily and is therefore a hit, rather to its melancholic playwright's disappointment. That play is Two Gentlemen of Verona, and just about every 21st century commentary on this play has begun with Shakespearean love, so I'm no exception there. Uh, the otherwise untrumpeted play uh, uh, is, takes a, a large role in um, Shakespearean love, uh, and the dog uh, there in the scene is called Crab. The film's Henslow, played by Geoffrey Rush, observes... Comedy is love and a bit with the dog. That's what they want. And what I want to try and talk about in today's lecture is the role of that dog within the themes and the performance of the play. So let's start with an outline of the plot of Two, two Gentlemen. The two gentlemen of the title are the close friends Valentine and Proteus. The play opens with Valentine leaving Verona in brackets, and thinking about the role of place that I talked about a couple of weeks ago in relation to Merry Wives of Windsor, most of this play takes place in Milan. Uh, the geographical specificity of the title is therefore quite misleading, but that's probably a different lecture. Valentine leaves Verona with his servant Speed, leaving Proteus behind to be near his, that's Proteus's, beloved Julia. Against his will, Proteus's father sends him off to Milan too, Julia and Proteus separate, vowing fidelity and exchanging rings. Meanwhile, in Milan, Valentine has fallen in love with Sylvia, whose father, the Duke, prefers another suitor for her, Thurio. Valentine and Sylvia plan their elopement. But when Proteus arrives in Milan, he too falls in love with Sylvia, and so he betrays Valentine's plan to her father. Valentine is caught in the act, banished, and becomes the leader of a bunch of rather polite outlaws who live in the forest. But Julia is not willing to be left behind in Verona. She follows Proteus in the disguise of Sebastian. Not recognising her, of course, Proteus sends Sebastian as a love envoy to Sylvia, of course, and uh, gives uh, uh, Sebastian... Uh, to give to Sylvia the very ring he had been given by Julia, of course. Sylvia rejects Proteus and flees to the forest where she is captured by those outlaws. Now, the end of the play is deeply problematic, and you may feel that I'm avoiding the real issue of Two Gentlemen of Verona by trying to organise the lecture around the dog, as if it's a kind of canine dramatic equivalent of the so-called dead cat strategy by which we distract attention from something we don't want to talk about with the diversionary tactic of throwing a dead cat, metaphorically, on the table. But what I want to try to discuss is how the presence of the dog helps us to interrogate the troubling and morally compromised ending of Two Gentlemen of Verona from some different viewpoints. Here's what happens. Proteus frees Sylvia from the outlaws, and then he tries to force himself on her. I'll force thee yield to my desire. Valentine is watching and he intervenes 
to rescue her from Proteus' attempted rape. Proteus is repentant. So, listen carefully. Valentine then agrees that he, Proteus, rapist Proteus, can have Sylvia after all, since his repentance is genuine. Sylvia, perhaps not surprisingly, does not speak. But Julia faints at the news that her own lover will marry someone else. Might have been more sisterly to do something a little earlier, but let's set that aside. And Julia's identity is discovered. Proteus relinquishes Sylvia and is reunited with Julia. The outdoors, uh, the outlaws bring the captive Duke and Thurio, who withdraws his claim to Sylvia, and her father consents to the marriage with Valentine and pardons all the outlaws. So, not quite love and a bit with the dog after all, or at least not only that. So this is a troubling play, and in one sense the dog may indeed be a diversion, particularly for modern audiences. If you look at the recent stage history of Two two Gentlemen of Verona, the dog uh, takes on uh, a significant role. Looking at the RSC website, for instance, we can see Rhea in 2005, Woolly in 1991, and the very youthful Patrick Stewart playing Lance with his own rescue dog, Blackie, in 1970. Reviews of the play on stage are usually bewildered by uh, all, all kinds of aspects about it, particularly the ending, and I think they fix on the dog as a thing about which we can all agree. Even the play's severest critics agree wrote Charles Spence of The Telegraph on one production, that the clown and his beloved dog are a redeeming feature. Many reviews call for W.C. Grace's oft-quoted Never Work With Children and Animals to be reviewed in the light of what's so delightful about having a real dog on stage, uh, a, a kind of amplified version of the pleasure of seeing real things in the ersatz environment of the theatre. What a survey of recent productions also gives us, um, browsing through, say, John O'Connor's Directory of Shakespeare and Performance as an easy way to get a snapshot of newspaper reviews, what that survey gives us is the idea that Two Gentlemen of Verona is best understood as a preliminary play. It gives us certain things that we will get better and in more familiar form later. Julia is the first Shakespearean cross-dressed heroine, for instance, or Proteus and Valentine are uh, male friends of the sort we will see again uh, in later comedies like Merchant of Venice. Much of the commentary on this play has been concerned with its earliness, as if this alone uh, explains how odd it is. I hope, if nothing else, this whole series of lectures has brought out the oddness and the unevenness which seems to be intrinsic to all Shakespeare plays, early or late. So I'm not sure that earliness is all that helpful a heuristic here. As with other of Shakespeare's uh, early comedies, uh, well, early plays more generally, The Two Gentlemen of Verona has suffered from the assumption that it's early and therefore must be immature or slight. Despite the fact that there's no really firm evidence about its date before Francis Mearys lists it as first among the excellent plays written by Shakespeare, that's in a book, published in 1598. There are no records of early performance and no quarto publication. Nevertheless, despite the fact that there's no evidence about where it comes before 1598, it has, in all the most recent chronologies of Shakespeare's work, been put 
right at the beginning, almost as if it is juvenilia or apprentice work. This has come to explain certain of its aesthetic features, and those aesthetic features have in turn been used to corroborate the fact that it is an early play. But since, as I say, there's no evidence about the date, it's not published until the 1623 folio, we might feel that the argument about date and aesthetic value has become somewhat circular. In fact, it may be more appropriate and more useful to see this play as being about immaturity rather than being itself immature. In presenting the swiftness of falling in love, in this boy's own adventure of the outlaws living in the wood, in the changeability of tempers and moods, the play seems to anatomise the strength and the follies of youth. It presents itself as a journey towards maturation. Its characters, more, more I think than characters in other Shakespeare plays, are negotiating their relationship with their parents. Uh, Proteus is sent away by his father Antonio, who doesn't have any choice uh, about it. Sylvia and the Duke uh, are um, um, uh, the Duke has control over Sylvia and who she will marry. Even Lance, the clown, describes uh, his leave-taking of his family, zanily illustrated by two shoes, standing for his mother and father. So the play uh, understands itself as a kind of journey towards maturation, which it sees as a progress towards romantic partnerships. A kind of rite of passage play, perhaps, focused on the social formation of adult males. Whereas we now, of course, think of romantic comedy as a genre that particularly appeals to women, it's clear that this play, and the others like it, were originally written with a largely male audience in mind, rather like the role of the sonnet tr tradition in Elizabethan culture, with which two gentlemen of Verona have some obvious structural affinities. The play dramatises the tensions between same-sex and opposite-sex relationships. The trauma for men in Shakespearean comedy always requires that they leave behind something, often characterised as a male friendship, in order to form romantic partnerships. The melancholy Antonios of Merchant of Venice and Twelfth Night are victims of this movement, the, things, the, the men who must be left behind, in order for men uh, to take up with women. So too we might think of the bromance between Benedict and Claudio, which is sacrificed in Much Ado About Nothing. Now Two Gentlemen is a play that really prioritises male friendship, so let's start with a reminder about how male friendship worked in Renaissance culture. As you already know, Renaissance thinkers idealised the kind of intellectual and spiritual communion that was particularly possible between men. It shifted the hopes and expectations of mutual understanding and sympathy that modern Western society places on sexual, particularly heterosexual relationships, into the male-male sphere. Prominent among these theorists is the essayist Montaigne. Montaigne writes in his essay of friendship, describing the bond uh, between friends, our minds have jumped so unitedly together, they have with so fervent an affection considered of each other, and with like affection so discovered and sounded, even to the very bottom of each other's heart and entrails, that I did not only know his as well as mine own, but I would verily have rather trusted him concerning any matter of mine 
than myself. Montaigne's essay is a really useful source for this line of thinking, and we know that Shakespeare uses Montaigne's essay later in his career, although uh, Montaigne postdates this play, which probably draws its ideas of male friendship more uh, from the book of the governor and from the plays and prose writings of the influential writer John Lilly. So this view of friendship places male friendships above male-female ones, and incidentally above female-female ones, for the power and depth of their effective bonds. It's easy to see, after all, how in an age where male and female education and experience were so different, you might well feel that your husband or wife had a very different worldview, a different kind of conversation, and therefore a different sympathy from yours. What the passionate description of male friendship in this period can occlude, however, is the possibility of what, in the modern period, we call homosexuality. So it's a difficult line to draw between uh, protestations of affection between men uh, in Shakespearean plays, which seem to uh, draw on this doctrine of male friendship, uh, versus uh, uh, ideas um, about sexuality, uh, which we might want to bring to those plays. Let's look at the, and I think this is one of the uh, themes that uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona tussles with. Let's look at the first scene of the play in the light of this. Valentine and Proteus are parting, and that, right from the start, that's a a sort of structural scene which we associate with lovers. It's lovers who part, isn't it? The language of affection and separation reads to modern ears like a particularly intense parting. Their lexis of affection, calling each other loving, tender, honoured love, uh, sweet glances, sweet valentine. This wanders between the two men and the description of the absent and unnamed love of Proteus. Uh, Proteus is likened to Leander swimming the Hellespont for the love of Hero, perhaps a reference to Marlowe's poem probably written around the same time. The two men in this opening scene move from describing their love for each other to joshing about Proteus's love for a woman. And it's interesting that the same terms seem to circulate across both homosocial and heterosexual bonds. That seems potentially interesting. It may suggest that this play doesn't, in fact, correspond to that trauma view of male maturation from same to opposite sex bonds that I described a minute ago as one of the movements of Shakespearean comedy. Perhaps instead, it wants to allow male friendship to exist alongside or be reconciled within heterosexual marriage. At the end of the play, Valentine points to the fact that he and his friend have been paired off with women, stating, Our day of marriage shall be yours. One feast, one house, one mutual happiness. Our day of marriage shall be yours. One feast, one house, one mutual happiness. It's slightly difficult to know what Valentine has in mind, But whatever the marital domestic arrangements that are being proposed here, they don't seem to suggest the emotional and physical separation the two men experience at the beginning of the play. Valentine seems to emphasise the rejoining of the two friends as much as he does their marriages with Julia and Sylvia. Perhaps these heterosexual marriages are just the pretext or the beard for the ultimate and lasting union of the men I like to think of them as the ant and deck of the early modern theatre. 
Jeffrey Maston argues that our modern reliance on the mutually exclusive categories of hetero and homosexuality makes it difficult to see how they're actually simultaneously evoked in this play. The play confounds the categories or uh, insists that they coexist, that people are not in this, I suppose this, this fits in with early modern ideas of sexuality, um, that it's a thing you do rather than a thing you are. <clears throat> After all, since Proteus and Ballantyne are so like each other and like each other so much, isn't it obvious that they would desire the same woman? And we might want to see this larger structural or thematic equivalence between same and opposite sex relationships writ small in the way the play's characteristic language works. One of the reasons that Two Gentlemen is associated with very early Shakespeare is because it seems to be very patterned and rhetorical. And one of our teleologies about Shakespeare's writing, which may or may not be true, uh, one of the teleologies is that Shakespeare moves from a more artificial uh, in, in early modern terms, conceited or uh, overflowery, perhaps we might think, form of writing early on in his career, to something which is more uh, natural, conversational, flexible uh, later on. So uh, part of the reason uh, that Two Gentlemen is seen to be so early is because of its very particular pattern of artificial, decorative uh, verse forms. The play makes lots of use of two particular rhetorical devices. I'm just going to give you those now. They are anaphora, so anaphora, the repetition of the same word or words at the beginning of a sentence or line, and the device isocolon, isocolon, phrases of equal length and corresponding structure. So anaphora, the repetition of the same word or words at the beginning of a sentence or line, Isocolon is phrases of equal length and corresponding structure. We can see that these are both rhetorical figures about um, uh, repetition and similitude or mirror imaging in some kind of rhetorical way. And these have obviously got implications for models of sexuality uh, and desire here. Proteus gives a really good example of both in this fat parallel formulae. To leave my Julia shall I be forsworn. To love fair Sylvia shall I be forsworn. To wrong my friend I shall be much forsworn. We can see that the echoing structure of these lines, repetition uh, at the beginning uh, and the, the isocolon, on the equal uh, structure, the parallel structures, make uh, Proteus's betrayals of Julia, Sylvia and Valentine metrically and perhaps emotionally or socially equivalent. And what's interesting about a play named for two gentlemen is that it constantly triangulates their relationship with the desire for women. As the structuralist anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss famously observed, kinship alliances between men are secured by women, and women exist in those systems as tokens or intercessors, rather than as agents or even as desired objects. So they're not the thing in Lévi-Strauss's um, uh, analysis of marriage customs. Women are not the thing that men desire. They desire the relationships with other men that women enable them to have. <clears throat> uh, as the feminist Gail Rubin put it in a classic argument, heterosexual society is built on, quote, the traffic in women. Now, in part, the shifts of the play result from a thoroughgoing idealisation of women. 
Sylvia, uh, the object of both Valentine and uh, Proteus's and Thurio's uh, affections, is like the mistress in a sonnet sequence or troubadour song, distant and perfect. Proteus's song suggests the same. It's interesting that this has been perhaps the most famous uh, quotation from the play. Who is, Sil- who is Sylvia? What is she that all our swains commend her? Holy, fair, and wise is she, the heaven such grace did lend her that she might admire it be. Now, Julia is more assertive in, uh, in, in, in stressing her own activity and her own desires. Uh, she doesn't want to be left behind by Proteus. She dresses as a man and goes to follow him. But she, too, is constrained by male expectations of female behaviour. Only when dressed as Sebastian does Proteus see uh, that she is competent and useful. But, like Viola in Twelfth Night, Julia finds herself undertaking the same self-sabotaging role of go-between in her own betrayal. She is the person who has to go uh, and um, uh, prosecute Proteus's suit to another woman. In part, the role of Julia in male disguise, and again we see this developed in the character of Viola in Twelfth Night, seems to be an attempt by the play to square the circle of male homosocial desire. Just as at the end of Twelfth Night, Orsino does not have to choose between his male confidant Cesario and the female love object Viola, because they're the same person. So, too, Proteus gets a version of male-male friendship that he so idealises at the beginning of the play, when Julia, dressed as Sebastian, reveals herself in the forest at its conclusion. Even heterosexual marriage, that's to say, looks like male friendship, not least because Julia remains, like all Shakespeare's cross-dressed heroines, in the immodest raiment, as she calls it, immodest raiment of male male disguise, at the conclusion. So where, I hear you ask, does Crab fit in? The first argument about Crab has to be that he exists in order to be funny. This reading sees the scenes with Lance and Crab as episodic comic turns, perhaps associated with the memory of the top Elizabethan clown Richard Talton, who often performed with a dog, or... Uh, providing a showcase for his successor with the Chamberlain's men, Will Kemp. There are no stage directions in Lance's long monologues, but we could imagine them being punctuated with physical comedy, as in their representation in Shakespeare in Love. There's probably a whole subtextual history of lost comic gesture, a lost genealogy of physical comedy that gets missed out of modern editions and gets missed out generally of our stress on Shakespeare as a wordsmith, a textual artist rather than a performed one. The influence of Italian physical comedy techniques from Commedia dell'arte, for instance, are just starting to be explored uh, in relation uh, to Shakespeare's comedies. It's hard for us as critics to quite know how to talk about humour without deadening it into depth. Uh, And though I don't think I'll be exempt from that later in the lecture, I do want to flag it up now that sometimes uh, things may be just funny. Um, Maybe part of the dog, part of the point of the dog is to be funny, quite separately from the rest of the play. The dog works as an effective antidote to that carefully patterned Petrarchan language, not least because he can't speak. Is a break from its patterned and decorative rhetorical structure. 
Now, there must be some truth in this reading um, of uh, Crabbe as a, as a complete antidote or outsider to the plot. But it's also true that we don't seem to get a repeat of this scenario in other plays. If Kemp and his dog were a showstopper or crowd pleaser, we might well expect them to recap this routine in other plays, or to see a ripple effect whereas, where other dramatists try to get some of this canine magic. After all, we know that Shakespeare is not averse to reusing tropes and techniques that have been successful, and is not averse to allowing performers to do their thing. On the dog, though, we don't. If Lance was played by Will Kemp, we might expect a look-in for this canine straight man in the role of, say, Bottom or Dogbury, uh, some of Kemp's later comic roles, but we don't. Crab is, in fact, the only named animal role, the only named animal who comes on stage in Shakespeare. The only other on-stage animal definitely present, I think, is the famous pursuing bear that I discuss in my lecture on Winter's Tale. So that absence or that specificity, Crab is a a phenomenon of this play, not of the theatre more generally, seems to suggest that it's worth thinking about Crab as in some way more specific to or integrated with Two Gentlemen of Verona than the comedy um, uh, trope uh, tends to allow. Now, Crabbe himself, not incidentally, rather resists being thematically integrated into Two Gentlemen of Verona. His whole demeanour is to be unmoved and unresponsive. Part of the funniness uh, of the technique is perhaps that the dog fails to do any tricks. That's what we expect when we see a dog on stage. It's going to do clever things. Um, Crabbe actually seems, uh, so far as we can tell, to do nothing. We expect that Crabbe will perform in some humorous way, but in fact his part is, cons- is constructed through inaction. Lance acknowledges this, perhaps with a knowing nod to the unreliability of animal performers. Ask my dog. If he say I, it will. If he say no, it will. If he shake his tail and say nothing, it will. So Crabbe is a dog who refuses to be a performer, an actor who repeatedly ignores his cues, Crab turns potential dialogue into soliloquy. Now the dog, all this while, sheds not a tear, nor speaks a word. For some critics, that makes Crab a parody of the cruel-hearted and unresponsive Petrarchan mistress, uh, the, the person to whom the man keeps addressing um, requests for affection or for response, and who never replies. For others, Crab is a model of constancy and loyalty that the friends fail to be. One literary aspect of Two Gentlemen is its submerged relationship to the great urtext of emotional and sexual relations in this period, Ovid's Metamorphoses. We used to sing Ovid as a source for many plays, including Titus Andronicus and Midsummer Night's Dream. But here, the repeated verb metamorphosed which comes twice in Two Gentlemen of Verona uh, about both Valentine and Proteus, signals uh, the indebtedness to Ovid. Perhaps, too, it presages the rape narrative, since one of Ovid's major plots is a rape. Proteus is a man who is named for being changeable, for being Protean. He He himself explains his own changeability, even as one heat, another heat expels, or as one nail by strength drives out another, 
So the remembrance of my former love is by a newer option, uh, sorry, a newer object, quite forgotten. So Proteus is defined by, named for, changeability. He's a version of the fickle young men we meet again in Midsummer Night's Dream. But by contrast, Crabbe is firmly, constantly, we might even say doggedly, himself. The dog is himself, remarks Lance decisively. But in being himself, Crabbe also parodies some of that language of male friendship that we've heard earlier in the play. Lance says, I am the dog, no, the dog is himself, and I am the dog. Oh, the dog is me, and I am myself. I, so, so. This is a comic, deflated version of the idealised rhetoric of platonic union among male companions. Part of Lance's role, uh, and Crab too, is to puncture the inflated tendency of the play towards the idiom of courtly love, and to bring out its self-regarding absurdity. The scene in which Lance discusses Crab's misbehaviour, pissing a while but all the chamber smelt him, is well placed to undermine the courtly pretensions either side of it. So far then, I've been implying that Crab is a kind of focus for anti-Petrarchan or anti-Platonic uh, idealisations uh, that challenge uh, the governing pieties of two gentlemen of Verona. What I want to try and do uh, in the last bit of the lecture is to do this in a more sustained and critically informed way via the discipline of animal studies. Animal studies offers a theoretical framework for understanding how animals are used in literary texts. And it focuses in particular on ways their presence disrupts assumptions about human exceptionalism. Animals construct and problematise the question of what it means to be human. Erica Fudge writes that, quote, without the, without the animal, there would be no human. Without the animal, there would be no human. It's a great, great thought. So animals are active participants in culture rather than passive recipients of it. Now we can see this methodology as a more radical development of the interest in the other in Renaissance studies over the past decades. Uh, Catholics, witches, racial and ethnic others. These have all been uh, particular focuses of interest, partly as liminal or threshold cases which um, uh, allow categories to come into being. And animal studies is also drawing on the urgency of uh, political environmentalism in thinking about the interconnected ecologies of animal and human. The current idea of post-humanism, post-humanism, is a philosophical counter to the human-centred ideologies that have done such damage to our shared planet. By moving the human to the margin and emphasising other elements of the ecology, uh, we, can see, um, uh, we can see things differently. And we can see how Shakespeare, the literary architect of humanism, uh, most explicitly but not only perhaps in the title of Harold Bloom's famous book, Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human, you can see how Shakespeare's sort of critical investment, the inv critical investment we have in Shakespeare as a humanist, uh, might uh, open up his work to this uh, reappropriation re or reassessment from the point of view of animals.
As with lots of rules and codifications, we can often see in the culture of the late 16th century the effort to establish philosophical or category distinctions between, say, species or races or genres. And these are uh, um, attempts to um, categorise which get reified over the intervening centuries and which, broadly, postmodernism is trying to undo. That's why there are often uh, unexpected resonances between pre 16th, 17th century, and post, late 20th or 21st, modern culture. So resonances between pre- and post-modern culture. So Animal Studies has applied itself to numerous Shakespearean plays, typically with a literal attention to bestial imagery, which is referred as a toad or a spider, for instance, or the presence of animals such as sheep uh, in the pastoral imagination of Winter's Tale. Whereas simile... Uh, the use of animal similes in Shakespeare maintains the animal-human boundary. Humans are like animal species. The urge towards metaphor in Shakespeare's works tends to blur that boundary at the micro level. Humans are animals. These are uh, critical arguments, then, that bring to the fore meat-eating and the hunt in Titus, or the slain deer in the Forest of Arden in As You Like It, or the imagery of falconry in The Taming of the Shrew. So where would this work take two gentlemen of Verona? Well, Crabbe's resistance to the patriarchal social order that's so limiting in the play world may seem to valorise physical experience over the decorative linguistic constraints of this Petrarchan world. But the body, the physical, is a dangerous engine in the play, as the sexual violence at its conclusion shows us. Lance describes how I was sent to deliver him, Crab, I was sent to deliver him as a present to Mistress Sylvia from my master, and I came no sooner into the dining chamber, but he steps me to her trencher and steals her capon's leg. In bringing uh, uh, Crab as a present from Proteus uh, and showing him stealing the meat from her plate, uh, we can see that the dog preempts the queasy transaction of Sylvia between Valentine and Proteus at the play's conclusion. Lance explains he was supposed to deliver a more suitable canine gift, a lapdog, but he lost it and so offered Crab instead. We could see this as, a, 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 as shadowing Proteus himself as the rough surrogate for the more house-trained suitor, Valentine. So Crab is an appropriate go-between for Proteus and Sylvia in that he highlights the carnal desires that underpin Proteus's rhetoric of romantic love. He's a figure then for Proteus. Proteus later uh, likens his own desires to a dog, spaniel-like, the more she spurns my love, the more it grows and fawneth on her still. The idea of his love as it uh, is an interesting distancing of agency. He makes his desires into an animal, uh, with their own, uh, with its own separate being. So, if Crab is linked with Proteus, he's also linked with other characters uh, in the play. As I've said, he has some parallels with Sylvia as the unmoved Petrarchan mistress, and he's also linked with the character of Julia. When Sylvia rejects Proteus's gift of Crab, he sends another entreaty the ring that Julia gave him. Crab is a prop, then, to materialise that traffic in women that's the flip side of romantic courtly love. 
So these comparisons between Crabbe's behaviour and that of the other characters are small examples of a larger philosophical or ontological distinction. Are humans and animals different? That's the question, I guess, uh, the play asks at this point. Lance makes an explicit comparison between his own behaviour and that of the dog. Did not I bid thee still mark me and do as I do? When didst thou see me heave up my leg and make water against a gentlewoman's farthingale? Didst thou ever see me do such a trick? So Crabbe serves here to maintain an idea of civilised conduct and its limitations, even or especially in the act of debasing those conventions. And it's interesting to think why or to what effect this engaging dramatic scene where Crabbe uh, steals the cape on leg and uh, uh, pieces on the uh, furniture, why this scene is reported by Lance rather than being shown on the stage. Lance's description punctuates two decorous romantic scenes. Uh, it's often really good to see how Shakespeare structures his plays and, and, and the structural positioning of the Lance scenes in Two Gentlemen is really, uh, really interesting. Um, so the description serves either as behavioural contrast or as a subversive diagnostic. The physical world of the animal body underpins and undermines the play's neoplatonic aspirations. Perhaps this makes the violent, non-consensual scene of Proteus's attack on Sylvia less an aberration, less a break from uh, the world of the play and more its inevitable bestial conclusion. So animal studies also help us to animate the imagery elsewhere in the play. In the first scene, Proteus and Speed have an extended exchange about how Proteus is the shepherd and Speed the sheep. In Act 5, Sylvia likens Proteus to a dangerous wild animal. She says she would have rather been breakfast to a hungry lion than have false Proteus rescue me. It helps us to see the potential conceptual overlap of categories such as the dog and the Jew in Lance's description of Crabbe's cruel-heartedness. It's an equivalence which is developed in the extended dog imagery of the Merchant of Venice. This is Lance. I think Crabbe, my dog, be the sourest-natured dog that lives. My mother weeping, my father wailing, my sister crying, our maid howling, our cat wringing her hands, and all our house in a great perplexity. Yet did not this cruel-hearted cur shed one tear. He is a stone, a very pibble stone, and has no more pity in him than a dog. The Jew would have wept to have seen our parting. We can see, though, that the simile is already collapsed here, the poorest animal-human boundary again, in the notion that Crab has no more pity in him than a dog. Crab is a dog. I think Crabbe's presence in Two Gentlemen of Verona makes more visible some of the other contested boundaries in the play. And here we might link him with the role of the outlaws, uh, for instance. The outlaws are a curious um, uh, anticipation, perhaps, of the um, uh, duke, the, the exiled court in As You Like It. They, too, are likened to Robin Hood and his merry men. Uh, they're both uncivilised, barbarous, outside the sphere of the court and the repository of um, proper values. Uh, um, Valentine, uh, when they meet Valentine, uh, they ask him to be their general. They're very hierarchical. They want uh, 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 a general. Uh, are you content to be our general, to make a virtue of necessity and live as we do in this wilderness? 
So the wilderness would look to be the absolute location of the non-civilised. Uh, but here it's something uh, slightly different. The outlaws are not the threat to Sylvia. In fact, Proteus is. Um, Valentine agrees that he will become the captain to the outlaws, quote, provided that you do no outrages on silly women or poor passengers. Uh, so he, he agrees that he will be the um, uh, general of the outlaws so long as they're not too outlaw-ish. And the outlaws reassure him, no, we de- detest such vile-based practices. So the outlaws, too, look like a kind of boundary condition between the civilised and the barbarous, a bit like the dog, um, but turn out to undermine that boundary by their own unexpected behaviour. So one feature of these kind of readings is that they um, resonate with different aspects of Two Gentlemen of Verona's far-fetched plot, they serve to clarify and unify its themes. The play looks more interesting as a result of its encounter uh, with animal studies, and we might argue that that's as good a methodological justification as any. Animal studies, that's to say, uh, makes two gentlemen around look more interesting, and that has a role uh, in those questions of dating and chronology uh, that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So I've been arguing that the dog crab in Two Gentlemen of Verona has a crucial role in destabilising tropes of romantic and courtly love, in challenging boundaries of civilised, barbarous and bestial behaviour, in pointing out that the worst behaviour in the play is human, not animal, and thereby undermining the distinctiveness of human emotion and behaviour in the play. To be human in Two Gentlemen of Verona by contrast with crab, is not uh, to be uh, in in physical uh, control and behaving uh, well. That's what uh, the end of the play uh, shows us, the the failure of that. So crab is a parody of ideals of platonic male friendship. It's a parody of um, the trope of the unresponsive, haughty sonnet mistress. His liveliness and presentness on the stage substitutes authenticity for the affectation of courtly love, even as his conduct uh, gives a glimpse of the darker, carnal side of that physical authenticity. I think Crabbe's presence in the play makes legible, though it does not explain away or excuse, the animalistic behaviour of Proteus at the end of the play. Uh, Thinking about... Uh, some of these plays, just in uh, our own contemporary world, I feel that the, the language of and the political theory of consent uh, is a really uh, pressing uh, framework for thinking about Shakespeare's plays. A production of Two Gentlemen of Verona at Greenwich Theatre in 2004, directed by Stuart Draper, took on, for some important modern ideological reasons, the relationship between Valentine and Proteus as explicitly gay in modern terms. The production began arrestingly with Valentine reciting Marlowe's amorous love lyric, Come live with me and be my love. But this production says something about the delicacy of Shakespeare's own presentation of hetero and homosocial or sexual desire and of animal behaviours in Two Gentlemen of Verona, that the production's crab was travestied as a toy dog on wheels with a handle. I think that was a way of making 
uh, Crabbe uh, a less complicated and a less resonant figure on the stage. And I actually feel, uh, although I can understand the political impetus behind making Valentine and Proteus modern gay figures, I also think that possibly undermines uh, the um, challenge uh, that, the, that the play's structure of trying to reconcile um, intense male-male passions with heterosexual marriage gives us. So in um, presenting Valentine and Proteus as clearly gay and Crab as clearly a toy dog um, were both practical and um, uh, understandable, but I think rather bloodless and inadequate interpretations of the complexities I've tried to point out in Two Gentlemen of Bologna. So that's the end of this Approaching Shakespeare series. There are now 32 lectures. This is the 32nd of 32. You'll have to petition very hard if you want me to do the last ones. 306, probably not. Um, but I think we're just about done. So thank you for your company.